Hello and welcome to the SaaS Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Carl Anderson. This week we're here with Emma Lawler, the founder of Velvet. This episode covers the benefits of prototyping your app, building a product that requires a lot of customer buy-in, and the differences between running a VC-backed versus a bootstrapped company. Enjoy. We're here today with Emma Lawler, the founder of Velvet. How are you today, Emma? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm in New York City today. <laughs> today, is it, do you change around or are you always New York? No, no, I'm, I'm based here, but I, sometimes I hop around. So. so we start at the start. How did you find the idea for Velvet? When I started Velvet, it actually was in the crypto space. And so I was really excited, not by kind of like the token games that were happening, but more so I was going to these hackathons in 2020, 2021, and people were reinventing technology for the first time um, that I had seen in a very long time. And so I went pretty deep in the identity and payment space and the idea of how you could combine those two features into one inside of a wallet. Um, and so for a while, we were building wallet infrastructure with normal databases. And the hard part about that business, beyond the fact that crypto technology is very nascent, is that you have two user types. One is a business user type who has to accept authentication. And then the other is a consumer who's actually using the wallet. And so as we were building out that infrastructure, we started building out the data infrastructure that is now Velvet's core product. And so that entire feature is like, and product is completely deprecated, um, but it let us get to this much more, in my opinion, interesting data infrastructure product, which is what we're building today. What does your data infrastructure product do at the moment? Yeah, so product managers and developers spend a ton of time collecting, analyzing and organizing their data and they want to be able to access it, analyze it, and then use it inside of their actual product for things like personalization or segmentation, things like that. And so Velvet can ingest any data source, so your internal database or Stripe or any sort of product analytics tool. And then we query all of that data, let you save those queries, and then bring that data directly into your product. And so think of us kind of like, MetaBase, but with every single data source that you possibly wanted to drop into a database. That's really interesting because I also see you guys are doing a lot with AI powering how you access the data. Yeah. And so AI is really the accessibility layer. So it means you can come into our product and ask any question. So you could ask like, show me all emails for users who signed up today. That would be a really basic query. And then it would return a list of customers. And you could either turn that into an API endpoint and send them an email, or you could download a CSV, or you could do much more complex queries, like show me all super users and return an array of content recommendations. Oh, wow. So that's so it's basically like ChatGPT for your own database. Exactly. Yeah, because you can, you can use ChatGPT for this today, but you don't have your own data in there. So it's actually introspecting on all your real-time data from every single data source in your ecosystem. Wow, that sounds really powerful. I've definitely worked on products in the past where that was the big challenge was how do we make our content and recommendations relevant? Yeah, so my co-founder and I both have experience working at consumer companies. Um, and so I worked at Fitbit. That was like my first job in Silicon Valley as a product designer. 
And we could do crazy amounts of personalization because we had an entire data science team and really great engineers and product managers and designers that were building out all of this infrastructure. But earlier stage startups, even like, you know, series C or D companies just don't have the resources to do that kind of personalization inside of their product. And so AI has really unlocked a ton of that functionality so that the average person or like one really great engineer can perform uh, what would have taken an entire personalization team to facilitate in the past. I worked at Spotify and we had a problem too. We we're just sitting on massive amounts of data and we needed data scientists to get it out. And so I was on a team that was dealing with that and it was a whole problem of we were trying to make it accessible to managers and stuff. So I, I can definitely see how being able to ask natural language, simple questions to generate queries and get information out is super valuable. I know that you're quite early in your journey, but what do you think so far has been the most effective strategy you've used for sort of growing or finding your product market fit? So I think something that's different with an infrastructure company is that you can't just buy ads against it and have someone download an app and use it like you would for a consumer company or even a lot of SaaS companies. For us, we have to ingest all of your data. So someone has to trust us enough to connect their database. And then they have to have API key access for every single tool. And then they need to do some sort of historical data sync. If they do those things, our tool is magical. It's access to your internal data in a way that I've never experienced at any company I've worked at. There are a lot of hurdles to getting there, mostly just your engineer's time. In order to get someone to the aha moment with our product, it's quite a long sales cycle considering we're an early stage company. And so I'm mostly going to warm leads, asking them for feedback on the product, which gets them to adopt it and connect all their data. And then once they try it, they are addicted to it and they want to keep using it. And so that's been a really great strategy for us, which is super manual, not fun to do, not my specialty, but it's been awesome to do this founder-led sales and really be deep in the process to understand exactly what it takes to get someone onboarded. Oftentimes we do the work ourselves and then how to get them to that aha moment. How are you finding your warm leads? A lot of it is just, let me think about who is located in the city that I'm currently in. Let me ask them to coffee and then convince them to try the tool. So that's that's worked for a while. Obviously that's limited, but I'm going to start doing that on LinkedIn Sales Navigator. I just created a paid account with them. And then Superhuman is amazing for if you have to be emailing all the time. I kind of use that as a search engine for my network, honestly. If I find someone's email online or even in a Hacker News thread, I'll drop it into Superhuman. And then it gives you like all the clear bit data for them. So you can find their LinkedIn, the website they work on. Sometimes even it'll link to like Crunchbase or something like that. So yeah, LinkedIn, Superhuman. And then there's another tool called Apollo. And there's a lot of similar tools like this that kind of automate the sales process. I've experimented with it a little for this company and it just doesn't convert all that well. Just doing automated AI outbound can work for some things. I think if the ask is like, hey, put your engineer's time on this data integration, someone really has to want to do that thing. And so we're still experimenting on, on what that pipeline looks like. I just learned a new sales term called pipeline coverage. I went to this awesome sales workshop recently that Primary VC put on, 
And it's the idea that if you want to convert 100 customers, you first have to understand the conversion rate. And so let's say you want 100 paid customers and you know your conversion rate is 10%. That means you have to have 1,000 leads in your pipeline in order to convert to 100 paid customers. So just imagine like how many people you have to reach out to before you're going to be able to convert one of them. And you might not find out that you can't convert them until like three months later. And so it's all about like shortening your sales cycle, figuring out how to drive adoption, and then just like reaching out to people constantly as your full-time job as a founder. So not super fun, not odd, not like a quick tip, but I think, I think that's what you kind of have to do with uh, B2B infrastructure. I mean, it's, it is a sort of natural part of a lot of sales cycles, though, is you can't, like, the dream is that everyone comes to you and it's very hands-off, but it's, yep. you know, it's not always realistic, especially with these sort of infrastructure and more core, sort of larger investments, larger buy-ins for your, your customers. Yeah, and I think, I think the other thing is just, like, and this, this is probably more for, like, a technical co-founder, but, like, being on every single Hacker News thread, following up on Twitter threads, just constantly be within the realm of context for your user type. You did mention that building an infrastructure tool was really difficult. Is there anything else that you found really hard around building that tool or is it just that adoption? Getting to an MVP for an infrastructure product is a whole different animal than a marketplace or a consumer product. You can't just hire cheap engineers and build out a prototype and get someone to use it. Like you are dealing with people's secure data and they don't want to have a data breach on their end. So it just, it took a lot longer than I expected. I thought we could maybe get to an MVP in three months, but it took us more like nine months before we got to something that I was like, I feel really good about this. And it's still like, I'm embarrassed to put it out there, which I think that's kind of the advice is like, put something out there that you're embarrassed by um, but you don't want to put something out there that's not safe. <laughs> and so that's why the bar is quite a bit higher for infrastructure. Have you gone about establishing that trust with your customer, potential customers, and making them feel safe about letting you access their data? In the early days, which I would still put us in that category, it's been very relationship-based. Like I'll get on a call with someone the first time and give them the sales pitch. I have a deck that I walk them through and it talks about our infrastructure and our data flow and pipeline and everything. And then the second call is always with engineers. So that's the customer's engineer, my CTO. And that's where a lot more questions come up and a lot more of the trust is built, I would say, because the founder or the product stakeholder, they want to use this tool, but they don't really have the power to say yes or no. It's really the engineering team that needs to be like, yes, I'm willing to integrate with this. And it's secure enough for us to do the integration. And sometimes that part of the sales cycle takes a long time because someone has to prioritize an engineer's time towards this and then get them on a call and then get them to do the integration. Once engineers learn how we're building everything and how we have one database per workspace and one table per source, it becomes a lot more clear and evident how we're handling data and that we're using best practices here. My, my co-founder used to work at MongoDB, which is a da database company. Um, so that helps quite a bit. <laughs> so when you were your early MVP and sort of that, that nine-month period, how are you managing validation and making sure that you're heading in the right direction? 
One thing that I have on my side is that I am a product designer. As a designer, you spend a lot of time doing research, talking to users, building prototypes. And those prototypes can feel like the real end user experience. Um, like oftentimes I'll show my Figma prototype instead of our real system on like investor calls or sales demos or whatever, just because it like looks perfect and, and it looks exactly like what our app looks like. I got a long way with both fundraising and sales adoption simply with a Figma prototype. I have like our production Figma files that map directly to our product. And then you can just click through it and it like animates and does all this magical stuff. Figma is an amazing product. Honestly, that's how we've done most of our sales. And I would say Figma is such an accessible product that any founder should be doing things like this before they build anything. Because we can completely validate a feature before we write a line of code. So during this sort of validation stuff, what was the sort of balance between listening to customer feedback versus building stuff that doesn't exist or new features that they may not think of and may not suggest? This is an interesting problem that we're working through right now because we are in an emergent space. We're working on an AI tool with data infrastructure. There's a lot of people thinking about these problems. It's core to every single startup on the market. Things move really quickly. AI changes all the time and the capabilities. So there's a couple of things. One is if, if we listen to every single piece of feedback from our customers, we would end up just rebuilding Metabase because that's what's on the market. That's what they know. And that's what they expect. And so they're looking for a set of features that are at parity with other data infrastructure tools that they're already using. And we have this different long-term vision of what we're building, where you might even use Metabase and Velvet side by side, because we're going much deeper into product development and actually bringing that data into your product to facilitate other things that you want to do, like personalization or automation. So I say that because we're going to have to build some features that people expect, like visualizing data, for example, and sending reporting emails and maybe some light dashboarding features. But that's not what we want to be as a company. And so it's this really hard balance of like monetizing early on, but not, not building the product that we don't want to work on. What would the dream state be? The dream state is that every PM and every developer has a free account with Velvet and they are power users of their database. So they come to it every day to ask questions, to run queries, to save queries, and then to actually bring that data into their product. Imagine a world where a PM can be the owner of the data. They can set a query that defines super users. And then an engineer can actually build features on top of that super user's query. They could send emails to them. They could show them a pricing modal. They could show them a recommendation feed. Um, so that's the world where we get really excited about, but we're far from that. Like first, we have to be able to ingest your data, clean it, unify it, and run queries, and then give you accurate results. Um, and so we have to stay there for a long time so that we can build these other things that are much more exciting. But we can't boil the ocean yet. So right now we're, we're staying very close to users um, and building out the features that they want to see. Obviously a cornerstone of this whole approach is the AI side of things. And how do you feel about the future of AI in 
SaaS and software? I am definitely a technology accelerationist, which I think is a, a bad way to describe myself. But like, I'm pretty optimistic about technology and I'm excited to use things and try things. And I don't think that we're going to be like killed off as a species. That said, AI moves really fast and we're not an AI company. We're building on top of AI. And so that means that we have to use an endpoint in a way that facilitates the workflows that we want to facilitate without being too dependent on what might change within those platforms. So right now we're using OpenAI, but we could easily swap out that endpoint for like Azure or Llama or whatever else we want to use there. So it's just like an accessibility thing for us of like, if everybody's going to be talking to their computer like a human, we want to have that same interface. Do you think being an AI company, well, sorry, not an AI company. Helps. <laughs> but using, using deeply using AI, yeah. Do you think that helps a lot with the sort of VC funding process that you had to go through? When I raised VC, we actually raised money on a completely different idea. I was an EIR at a VC fund called Chicago Ventures. They knew that I was starting something and it was going to evolve very much. And, and the core principles are still the same of like, we're taking a bunch of user data and figuring out what to do with it. But really your first fundraise, especially when it's like a pre-seed, pre-product, pre-revenue fundraise is about the founders. It's about your vision. And it's about a belief that you're going to build a billion dollar business. Like that's what a VC is looking for. The seed round is going to be totally different. We need to have adoption. We need to have paying customers. We need to have a really concise, clear idea of what our product does. And so that's really what our pre-seed was about, was getting to that place where we have found our market and know exactly what we're building. I'm really glad I'm not fundraising right now because it sounds horrible. <laughs> um, like I feel for anyone who's raising anything except for a pre-seed right now, because the bar is just crazy high. You have to have $500,000 in ARR to close a seed round right now. I'm hearing from some people. You've also worked in bootstrap companies too, right? How did you find this experience different? Yeah, so my last company was called Moonlight and we started that as a bootstrap business and then eventually ended up raising VC and selling the platform. So I got a really great testing ground to see what it was like to have a bootstrapped company versus a VC backed company. I personally prefer working on a VC-backed company because it gives you a really specific timeline to figure something out. And for me, that creates this really compelling urgency and momentum behind everything that I do. Whereas with a bootstrap business, I think it can be easier to monetize because like any money that comes in goes directly to you and your company. Um, you don't have to worry about like building a billion dollar business, but it also means there's no clear timeline or urgency. Like you could work on something for five years and maybe you pull in enough money to pay your salary, but you get bored and then you just stop working on it. Like I, I think that tends to happen a lot. So yeah, just the way my psychology works. I like having investors involved. I like having people kind of breathing down my neck and, and like wanting me to push things harder. And I like working with other people. As a bootstrap founder, it's it's hard to hire people because you're like, if I hire someone, that means my salary is less. So the incentives are like a little wonky, I think. For both bootstrapped and VC-backed businesses, the incentives are wonky in different ways. But I guess I just prefer the VC-backed path.
In terms of actually growing sort of a team in a VC environment, so how would you go about, how do you go about managing that and making sure you're not burning through too much runway? My perspective on that, especially in this market, is to keep things extremely lean. So I'm very careful about runway, especially in this market. I have a spreadsheet and it has all of our expenses in it. It has any assumptions. So like me and my co-founder's salary, contractor's salary, et cetera. And so anytime we spend any money, it adjusts our runway. It's me and my co-founder as full-time employees. And then we bring on highly specialized contractors every once in a while uh, to build out projects. And so we usually have like one contractor at a time, but it could be anywhere from one to four, depending on how much product we're trying to build. And those are generally just people from our network who we've worked with in the past and trust. But yeah, we're running things differently than a lot of VC-backed teams who I think overhire the minute they close funding. And then it's just a consistent runway burn. Do investors mind that sort of slower growth? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's slower growth. My investors would like me to have a lot of paying customers, but that's like always what an investor wants. Like you want hyperspeed growth. But if we just started pouring gas on the fire to hire, to buy paid ads, to, you know, do anything with growth or acquisition, we would just burn through our runway way faster. I don't want to do that until we have really clear signs of product market fit. And I also don't want to lie to ourselves about whether we have it or not. Like, I think it's really easy to, to like see people organically signing up and using the product and be like, we have product market fit. But in my opinion, we don't have product market fit until people use the product, they stay retained forever, and they would be extremely disappointed if our product didn't exist. And we're getting there. Like I can start to feel that, but I don't want to be anywhere close to fundraising in this market without really strong signals. Obviously, the market is a little bit rough at the moment. How has that sort of impacted your approach to building the business? I think if I was building this business in 2021, I would be thinking about it differently. But the advice from like every investor I talk to is extend runway. Like you do not want to be caught in fundraising right now unless you absolutely have to. I don't know. My expectation is that this year is going to be pretty similar because a lot of funds raised money and then had to deploy it into these companies who will never be able to fundraise again. And so it's just going to be every VC is going to be extremely careful about who they invest in. And there's just like no more narrative based fundraising in this market. So I'd like to be at least a little bit on the other side of that before we have to go out and do this again. You were talking about product market fit. What do you think is the sort of signal that the team should look for to know that they have, they've, they've achieved it? I've mentioned Superhuman in the past, but they have a really great blog post about when they thought they had product market fit. And they would send this survey and ask how upset or sad would you be if Superhuman no longer existed? And you want everyone to say like they would be very angry. So I think that's a good actual hard metric that you can try and measure. But I think for us, we want to make sure that we're not boiling the ocean and building a bunch of micro features that can be monetized, but people don't really care about. Beehive is an email tool. And I think they fall into the category of they just ship features all the time and they monetize every single feature. And they probably make a lot of money doing that. But that's like one end of the spectrum. And then the other is like, you just do one thing really well, linear would fall into that category where they're not doing anything different than Jira ever did. 
It's just way better designed and amazing to use. We would like to fall on that end of the spectrum of like, we're a super user tool that people love to use every single day and are happy to come back to rather than just like addicted to a bunch of features. What metrics are you tracking to sort of assist with making sure you're on the right path? We don't have a ton of end users. Like we're B2B to C often or B2B to B to C, meaning that like our customers have many end users, but we only need to have somewhere between 10 and 100 customers to monetize in the way that we want to. Because we'll, we'll have like many ICs using us for free and then a few organizations on enterprise plans. More so than metrics, I'm looking for qualitative feedback. We've had a few customers write in, in all caps, being like, oh my God, Emma, we love this product. My COO is obsessed, like in all caps. That kind of stuff goes a long way at the early stages. That gasoline can keep me going for months. And then I guess a little more quantitative, but when somebody joins and gets all their data in, we want to count the, the number of data sources they add, how many events are coming through. And then we especially want to see how many of their coworkers they invite to join the platform. So like last week, we had someone on board and then invite three more people over the weekend. Probably because those people were like, hey, EJ, can you like query this data for me? And he was like, no, but Velvet can go use it. Um, so those are the exciting things that we're looking for in the early stages. Is there anything you recommend other companies do that you do that you've found really effective? I don't know if this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to be doing. I should be doing sales full-time. I'm a product person. I'm a product designer. My co-founder is an engineer. Neither of us like doing sales, but it should be both of our full-time jobs at this point. Like we have an end-to-end -end product that's functional and works and we love using it. And so we should be spending all of our time reaching out to everyone we know and being on all the forums, being as extroverted as possible. That's what I should be spending all my time on. And, and what I like, what I tend to do is block off like an entire day every week that I'm not going to move. And it just says do sales. So that would be my advice for product focused people. And then for sales focused or business people, I would say prototype use Figma, build out a prototype of what you want to exist before engineers write a line of code because you'll be able to get so much further with validation before you spend a bunch of money on engineering. Well, thank you for coming today, Emma. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Carl. This was great. So that was Emma Lawler, the founder of Velvet. As a special treat for podcast listeners, you can try Velvet free for 30 days by emailing team at usevelvet.com. Otherwise... If you enjoyed this podcast, you can sign up to the newsletter at carlanderson.xyz to be notified of every future episode and for helpful articles and tips to help you grow your SaaS business.